0: Quick, listen, enjoy. Broadcasting live worldwide. Thank you for tuning in to TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest running Jewish broadcast network. The voice of the Jewish community. You're listening to TalkLine with Zev Brenner. America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. Purim
1: is a time of joyous celebration on the defeat of the evil Haman by the Jews of Persia led by Mordechai and Esther. Our guest, Professor Elliot Horowitz, believes and he theorizes that Purim was a day when Jews took vengeance on non-Jews. Interesting theory. I'm not sure how much basis in fact it really has, but an interesting thesis that he's put together. He has since passed away. So we present his interview on TalkLine with Zev Brenner from about five, six years ago. Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brenner. Live in our studio is Professor Elliot Hurwitz, a native of New York. He's Associate Professor of Jewish History at bar Ilan lan University, a co-editor of the Jewish Quarterly Review. His latest book is called Reckless Rights, Purim, and the Legacy of Jewish Violence. Welcome to the program. It's a provocative cover on your book. It has a picture of a Hasidic man uh, reading the Megillah, but he's using as a pointer an automatic rifle.
0: Right. It's actually a toy rifle, as I explain uh, inside the book. The history of the picture is quite interesting. The photo was done by Alex Livak, who uh, won Israel Prize in photography in 2005. But in 1996, while I was working on this book, uh, I came across very curious book of his photographs, he has a photo every weekend. in Haaretz, and what he specializes in are strange scenes which seem to be staged, but they're really from real life. So, in fact, here, this was a Purim scene where it was a toy gun that, uh, Kalachnikov, actually, that a, a Hasidic young man was using as a pointer to follow the laning on Itself and what the people at the designer at Princeton did for the cover is simply did a montage and used the Megillah instead of a Chumash. But except for that, it's an actual scene and it's a toy gun which the Chassid is using as a pointer, not a real gun.
1: Now, you're uncomfortable, obviously, in uh, the books about some of the legacy, which seems, of Jewish violence uh, with the Purim story. So perhaps can you tell us how you came about to even well, explore something which is not really discussed well, I'm much? I'm not
0: really uncomfortable about anything. My job as a historian is to write about the Jewish past, and every aspect of any people's past has uh, complicated uh, uh, complicated chapters in it. And I must say my own curiosity was wedded when I saw how previous historians had tried to cover up aspects of Jewish uh, violence on Purim. And it always happens to us, even as children, when we feel that people are hiding something, we become even more curious. And it was precisely the way in which I felt that historians of the 19th and earlier 20th century were writing in an apologetic way about celebration of Purim that I felt it was time to sort of pierce that. Fail. So what do you
1: feel is being hidden in the Purim story, which is a story which is about hiddenness anyway?
0: Well, it's not the Purim story itself. It's what Jews did on Purim. And uh, it's part of a larger issue, namely Jewish violence as a whole. And what I discovered while working on the book and one of the chapters that's devoted to this is that it's not only Jews who have a problem with the notion of their own violence, but also a very long anti-Semitic, Uh, stereotype of a Jew as being inherently cowardly and almost effeminate. And therefore, sometimes even Christians uh, would not... Christian historians would not be willing to accept the evidence of Jewish violence because they felt that Jews were cowardly and incapable of violence. So that it's two kinds of historians. It's Jews who who are covering up to make themselves look good, and in some ways, Christians who buy into the notion of Jews as being not like other men and less capable of violence, uh, that, that caused the story to be skewed in both directions. And I felt that it was my obligation to reveal what could be revealed. So let's
1: get down to the nitty-gritty. So where have you found Jewish violence relating to Parm?
0: Well, the earliest incident uh, comes from the 5th century. In fact, my book uh, was quite a stretch for me, going from the 5th through the late 20th, normally I deal with the middle ages and and renaissance period. Um, in the town of Inmastar, uh in 415, uh, two Jews uh, did a kind of mock passion of Christ and took a Christian child uh, while they were drunk on Purim, tied him to a tree, and whipped him and then he ended up dying accidentally. Uh, Now, uh, we know that in the early, in the very same time, one of the uh, Roman emperors, Theodosius, who was a Christian emperor, issued a law which appears in official codes of the Roman Empire uh, warning the Jews to stop burning a cross on Purim, to stop burning uh, Jesus on a cross on Purim, pretending that it's only Haman. Uh, So, in fact, we have, from the early 5th century in the late Roman Empire, after the empire became Christian, two kinds of evidence of Jews using the holiday of Purim to vent the hostility of Christianity, which they felt but could not express because Christianity had become, uh, early in the fourth century, the official religion of the uh, Roman Empire. And one of the things that, so of course there have been some historians who tried to cover it up and say, no, it wasn't a Christian child, it was a doll or
1: uh, but it 's just yeah. one incident though right. It's uh, just you know, one incident so that doesn 't make exactly. a whole as a historian series. exactly a
0: mm-hmm. historian to me what 's far more significant um, is the uh, a law of the Roman Empire uh, calling upon the Jews or warning them to stop burning the cross, that is to say, undoubtedly much most of the violence on Purim was against symbols of Christianity and not christians it 's really about. The hostility to the Christian religion to the symbols of the cross as a symbol of Christian power, and not and even let 's say if it 's a Christian child who was uh, killed inadvertently it 's more about hostility to the Christian religion than to individuals uh, but of course, Jews in the nineteenth century were not comfortable with that either, uh, so there tends to be quite you know quite a, a cover up uh, of this but on the other hand, a large part of mm-hmm. my book also uh, reveals the degree to which uh, anti-Semitic historians of the blood libel use this incident uh, of the early 5th century to, for example, uh, attempt to corroborate the claims that were made in Norwich, England, in the uh, 12th century, um, actually the 13th, um, and uh, elsewhere in Europe, uh, that Jews were taking Christian children and killing them before before Passover. So that uh, the significance, the reason that, you said before, Christians took an interest in Purim it was after links had been made between Jewish violence uh, on Purim and uh, claims about Jewish ritual murder and then evidence of uh, Jewish violence even against Christians on Purim were used illegitimately in my opinion uh, as an attempt to bolster the claim that uh, Jews had a need for Christian blood or
1: but the question, though, is though, and I'm not, and I, I know that you cover a vast area, but part of the t- period that you cover is also the period of the Crusades, where Jews were brutally massacred, killed by Crusaders on route to the Holy Land. I'm sure there have been instances even prior to the Crusades where Jews were made, to, at the very least, made to feel inferior second-class citizens. Uh, in the worst case, they were slaughtered, killed, massacred in a brutal fashion. Uh, we have the keynote that, that speak about that. So how much of this is a backlash against oppression Uh, the Jews face, and it was the only way they can lash back was to take a symbol and on Purim Day to vent against it. In fact,
0: not only on Purim, one of the chapters uh, in my book, uh, chapter 6, is called uh, The Fascination of the Abomination, and it's about Jews on the cross and uh, Jewish uh, violence against the cross, and there are many instances which I discuss not uh, having to do with Purim but having to do with martyrdom. What does a Jew do in the late 11th or 12th century when he's being pressure to convert uh in many instances we have uh jews spitting upon the cross or even urinating upon the cross um in, with their very last uh effort knowing that they're going to die knowing that
1: but in uh, the context when you wrote about it in the context where they're asked to convert and they're going to be killed if they right, don't so right. they're just doing it that's an act of rebellion
0: right but it, what, so what i'm saying is that there that the cross and the symbols of christianity arouse uh a degree of animosity on the part of the Jews, similar to, say, the swastika uh, in later times, and therefore uh, you have the phenomenon of Jews knowing that they're going to die, and deciding what is it they want to do with their last uh, uh, w- with their last moments. Um, expressed it as, in fact. Quite curiously, this has nothing to do with, with cross. We have evidence of their shouting the Shema Israel. Now, why should they shout the Shema? Because they're claiming that God is one and not three. That is to say, that it's about transforming their deaths not into not only into loyalty to God, but expressing hostility to Christianity through their death, which the great Israeli historian Jacob Katz uh, wrote about in, in his book uh, Exclusiveness and, and Tolerance. And I'm only extending this uh, his own argument to areas beyond martyrdom like Purim.
1: But getting back to the thesis regarding Purim itself, over the course of your research, how many instances are we talking about of uh, where the violence on Purim or relating mm. to Purim that Jews have engaged in from, let's say, the 5th century to current times?
0: Well, I think that that one of the most interesting and representative cases is in late 12th century France, in a place called either Bray or Brie that were not clear from the Hebrew sorts, uh, which it is, but actually we have a Latin account of the same. And there you have a case where a Jew had been killed by a Christian for whatever reason, and the Jews had paid a bribe to the local duchess uh, in order for that Christian to be executed. And then uh, Ephraim Ibon, the Hebrew chronicler, writes, Vayitluhu Biyom purim. Uh, and although there are debates about the historians as to exactly how to understand it, it's quite clear that what this means is that the Jews, having paid the bribe um, for the Christian murderer to be executed, uh, chose the day of Purim and the means of death. That is to say, hanging, similar to both Haman and Jesus, and on the day of Purim. Uh, And uh, in fact, we have a Latin parallel uh, account of the same event, where not only was the Christian executed, but before he was executed, there was a... uh, kind of parody of the Passion of Christ in which a, uh, a uh, cross uh, of thorns, uh, sorry, a crown of thorns was put on his head and uh, they more or less repeated the experience of Jesus himself so it was clear that aside from punishing this one murderer, an attempt was made to use the holiday of Purim and perhaps to do it under the guise of festivity and drunkenness as a means of uh, unleashing a very deep animosity towards the Christian religion.
1: Which at that time, I have to, again for historical context, Jews were persecuted at various times. Right.
0: Well, the job of the historian is not mm-hmm. to say whether they were justified in the violence or not. No, I'm just saying I'm putting
1: to, in historical context.
0: Only to say that this is how things work. There are reactions uh, when people uh, are pressed hard. Uh, sometimes they can strike right strike right back. Sometimes they have to come around and uh, respond in indirect manners. Uh, in fact, uh, here I would call refer to what some sociologists have called "weapons of the weak." Jews, when they were weak, uh, did not have conventional weapons. They had weapons of the weak, and sometimes weapons of the weak uh, can be some, sometimes weapons of the weak can be quite quite brutal. But it's because they uh, don't have the conventional way of responding. In this case, the Jews, as I said. Uh, were less hostile to individual Christians than they were to Christianity as a religion and as a power of oppression. And although all year they uh, had to pretty much stay in line, Purim was the opportunity they had. They allowed themselves for letting loose. And uh, as I said, no accident that um, Haman was hung, that uh, Jesus was hung. That is to say, the Hebrew word "tliyah" and tl- the Hebrew words tlian and are synonymous. So uh, from the Jewish point of view, the hanging of Haman and the crucifixion of Jesus are the same words. And the two characters were in many ways also in Piyotim for Purim. The two characters were conflated.
1: We're speaking with Professor Elliot Horwitz, who is Associate Professor of Jewish History at bar Ilan University in Israel. His fascinating book is called Reckless Rights, Perm and the Legacy of Jewish Violence. This broadcast is from our archives. Professor Elliot Horwitz has unfortunately passed away, but we present it again because of his interesting thesis that he's presented. We're going to be right back.
0: That's 212-769-1925, extension 100. Or email info at talklinenetwork.com.
1: Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. TalkLine
0: Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network. The voice of the Jewish community. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981.
1: Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brenner. Our interview tonight Professor Elliot Horowitz of Blessed Memory is from our archives. And Professor Horowitz has theorized that Jews became more violent throughout history on And We continue our interview. Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brenner. Live in our studios is Professor Elliot Horowitz, Associate Professor of Jewish History bar Ilan University. His fascinating book is called Reckless Rights, Perm and the Legacy of Jewish Violence. Professor, you're talking about how Perm, which is considered a relatively minor holiday in the Jewish scheme of things, yet the Christians and Jews have been fascinated by it. In fact, uh, you write that Hitler himself was concerned that if he failed in his mission, that Jews would have another holiday similar to Purim.
0: Well, as you said, uh, the Germans uh, both during and before the Holocaust were aware of the nature of the holiday of Purim, uh, partially because even going back to Martin Luther, Martin Luther is quoted as saying that of all the books in the Bible, the one that he would have removed from from the Hebrew Bible was the book of Esther, which he considered to be too Jewish. And by too Jewish, he meant too revengeful because of the end of the book. So it's a very interesting way in which from Luther to Hitler and to Streicher, whom we mentioned before, uh, uh, Germans and other uh, Christians in Europe were aware of the degree to which Purim was a potentially rev- revolutionary holiday because it's, as we know, it's a, it's a holiday of reversal, and uh, in the ghettos of Europe, as uh, historians of the Holocaust have shown, uh, the Nazis would prevent the Jews uh, from uh, reading the Megillah, from observing Purim, and in some cases engage in rather cruel jokes like hanging uh, ten Jews on the day of Purim as uh, sort of revenge for the ten sons of, of Haman, and therefore, it's not at all uh, surprising that from the 1930s on, uh, Hitler was referred to by Jews as a sort of codename code of Haman. In other words, they would write and say, and there is a new Haman emerging in Germany, and of course the H&H uh, played a role in a certain way. Um, and uh, one of the, cha- the chapter that deals with the image of Haman in Jewish culture uh, also discusses how Hitler came to be seen uh, as a new human.
1: In fact, uh, the story is told that in the Megillah it says that Esther asked permission to hang the ten sons of Haman, which already were hung. So it says the word Yitlu, which means they will be hung in the future. So the way the story is told, uh, these ten sons of Haman are the ten Nazis that were about to be executed after the war. Actually, there were 11, but one committed suicide. Ten were hung, among them Julius Streicher. I believe it was he who shouted at Purim... For in 1946. 46, uh, right. when he was hung. Right. Famous well, story. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, the issue of the Ten Sons of Haman is actually quite interesting. Uh, in the Middle Ages, as we know, Jews were, uh, until the 20th century, never particularly interested in visual art, but yet we have illustrated manuscripts here and there. And in illustrated Mahzorim of the Middle Ages, the one most consistently popular image for uh, accompanying, let's say, P.U. team for Purim or Shabbat Zahor is the image of the 10 sons of Haman hanging. For Jews, that was really central and partially because they saw them as the Molekites. And in fact, probably the only explanation uh, from a Jewish point of view for why Haman's own sons had to be killed was if you see Haman, Ha'agagi, Haman as the Agagite and therefore a member of the tribe of the Malachites, uh all of whom according to the Torah have to be uh, destroyed. Uh, And as I mentioned to you before, one of the chapters of my book deals with the understanding of Amalek through the generations uh, from the uh, time of the Mishnah and the Talmud until uh, the 20th century. And uh, there, too, we come back to Christianity because uh, the term used already in the Talmud uh, for Rome, the kind of code word was Esav or Edom. And as we know from um, the book of Genesis, Um, Amalek was the grandson of Asaph. And therefore, uh, there was the sense throughout the Middle Ages that uh, if Amalek was still in the world, which they felt he was, that somewhere in European Christendom was the place in which the Amalekites were residing. So this two, Mm -hmm. together with, if we see on the one hand the image of Haman and Jesus both finding their death through hanging and the sense of... Amalek being the grandson of Asav asav connected with uh, Edom and Christianity. Uh, so the history of Purim in Christian Europe is very different from that in the Islamic world, where uh, it's much less uh, much less of a history of violence against neighbors or Muslims or whatever until, of course, the 20th But when century. you
1: say violence, though, is the violence, except for that incident where you mentioned where there was a... A child that was killed, and he said it was an accident. They they did something they shouldn't have done, but there are a lot of incidents of actual violence. Of Jew against non-Jew around the Purim time, or yes. is it mainly where they desecrated Christian symbols in certain limited amounts and areas? I mean, yeah. what, what, most, what are we talking most
0: about? Most most of the violence is against Christian images, and even when it's against individuals, it has to do with them as a symbol. For example, the Christian child uh, who died in the fifth century was really seen as a, a way to enact the reenact the Passion of the Christ. Um, or, say, in the late 12th century France, what I mentioned before, uh, when there was a murderer whom the Jews uh, paid a bribe to have killed, they chose the day of Purim, but not only did they put him to death, but they used his death as an opportunity to mock the passion of Christ. But
1: does that constitute violence? Uh, The way it's being portrayed that there's a whole legacy of Jewish violence, Purim, um, is there a legacy or are there isolated incidents? Well, there
0: certainly is a legacy of violence connected with Purim if we uh, think about today's Torah reading, which is to destroy and decimate the Amalekites. In fact, uh, King Saul was punished for uh, leaving one uh, King of Gog, which Human so, descended from. So there's there's no doubt that this is what has to be called uh, genocide uh, in uh, modern language. And wh- how Judaism can allow this is a subject not for historians, but for theologians. Sort but of. except,
1: though, in fairness, though, you don't find we have lists in the Shulchan Aruch. We have codification. There's no commandment today where we have even obscure mitzvot, commandments are being done, shaloha khan, sending the mother bird away. We find that we don't find anyone coming out and saying, you must go out and kill uh, somebody from Amalek. We don't find people looking for that. We don't do it, even though it's written in the books.
0: We don't don't do that. We're the opposite end of the Shulchan Aruch. uh, As I mentioned to you before we went on air, Um, through the Middle Ages, uh, Jewish uh, rabbis and post-game and and scholars uh, dealt with the question of the applicability in their day of the commandment to destroy Amalek and what should be done about it. Um, And, uh, for example... Not in the Islamic world, where the rabbis were not worried about it because it had little implication for their lives, but in Christian Europe, rabbis came up with the notion that the war with Amalek applied only when there was a Jewish king. Uh, and in fact, uh, as a result, uh, the tour, uh, which was written in Spain but uh, by an Ashkenazi rabbi, uh, deleted the mitzvah. If you look through the tour, there's a mitzvah to remember Amalek. There is no longer, there is not a mitzvah to destroy Amalek. And also in the Shulchan Aruch, there's no such uh, mitzvah any longer. But until the 14th century, Jews were living with the real question of, what do I do if I think somebody is an Amalekite? And the famous Sefer Echinuch, written in 13th century Spain, said, black and white, that if, uh, even in our day for him, 13th century, if you see an Amalekite, you must kill him. Uh, so that uh, when I speak about a legacy of violence, uh, it's primarily, it's more connected with the uh, commandment, uh, commandments connected with Amalek than it is with the actual uh, celebration of Purim. But, of course, the two went hand in hand because of the centrality of Amalek and Zohar uh, to... Uh, the celebration of court.
1: Because you don't find, really, cases of Jews going out, even after the World War II, when we believe that Hitler was a mulek, and you don't find them going out and enacting that violence. Uh, most Jews, uh, again, you pointed to, to the Torah, but even the Rambam says when it comes to a mulek, if you can engage in a peace treaty with them, you should first engage in a peace treaty. Um, those believe that a mulek will be eradicated when Mashiach comes, at the end of the day. Yes,
0: but that's not the Rambam. The Rambam no, no, clearly, I didn't say the Rambam, but, Rambam, but the Rambam
1: says that if you have an mulek, a nation, if you know who they are, you should first try to engage in peace with them, not just go first and destroy yes. them. So you find there is a watering down, so to speak, of the, the commandment yes. in the Torah is very clear, but a you find it's not practical.
0: What's very striking is when the Rambam speaks about the seven nations of Canaan, he says that uh, we no longer know who they are. Kva, and then he goes on to say, however, there is a commandment to destroy Amalek. And it's very clear that for the Rambam in the 12th century. Uh, there were still Amalekites in the world, and it could not be said that they were no longer we present. We don't
1: know, Kher, you know, mixed up oh, the nations, about, so no. we don't, we don't right. know who the they Rambam. are. But even with that, no. the Rambam, the Rambam said, says, says...
0: says that Amalekites are still in the world.
1: Right, but he says that if you have an opportunity to engage into a peace pact with them... You first go with that because if they, because they did not really, and I think it's brought down by the Kess of Mission that they're not really a Molech if they're willing to engage in peace yeah, well, uh, with the should, Jewish people.
0: Right. We should mention the Kess of Mission is also the author of the Shulchan Aruch who omitted the the commandment. On the other hand, uh, in Ashkenazic Europe, it was felt as a very live tradition, uh, said because uh, a Molech, uh, like Edom, came to be used as a term for Christians. In fact, one of the in my chapter on, on Amalek, I show how it was as a, used as a code word over the centuries for Christians who were particularly disliked. He is an Amalek, he is an Amalekite. And in fact, uh... But the verb famously, was not to act on that though. They, uh, well, uh, they would act on it, uh, on Purim, not, not through the year. That is to say someone who was seen as a Amalekite, uh, was someone, uh, whom, uh, the Jews would fear all year. But on Purim, uh, combination of uh, perhaps being stirred on by the story of Israel's victory against the Amalek and perhaps by uh, the commandment to uh, drink uh, beyond a reasonable amount, uh, there was more violence than other days, uh, and more violence than many historians have been willing to recognize, which is the point of the book.
1: We're speaking with Professor Elliot Horowitz. His book is called Reckless Rights, Purim and the Legacy of Jewish Violence. This as is from our archives. Professor Elliot Horowitz, of blessed memory, unfortunately passed away. But it is an interesting scholarship that he's written, and we present it for you, especially as we look at the observance of Purim and Jewish history. Thank you for listening.
0: Thanks for listening.
1: Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Talkline Radio and TV with Zeb Brenner is just phenomenal. Everybody concerned about the Jewish community should listen and watch. He has the best guests. He asks the most interesting questions. He's always so well prepared. It's talk radio and television from a Jewish point of view at its very best.
0: To advertise on the TalkLine Network and TalkLine's email and social media blasts reaching over 70,000 people, please call 212-769-1925, extension 100. That's 212-769-1925, extension 100. Or email info at TalkLineNetwork.com. Thank you for tuning in to TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.